Hello, this is Jacqueline Winspear, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and I'm alone today. No co-host because we have so much to get through. We're going to get right to it after I remind you to subscribe, to follow us on Twitter, at Writer Types, and to visit ericbeatner.com for more about my books. Now, I have a whole lot of writers to talk with today, starting with Chris Whitaker. Chris's novel, We Begin at the End, has been the talk of the town, so I knew I wanted to check it out. And I did, and I really enjoyed it, so I was very glad to get a chance to talk with Chris all the way from England and chat about his books that are set in America. We connected by using a video chat, and of course, being authors, we began by scoping out the bookshelves in the background of each home office. Well, hi there. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. You have a lot of books, Eric. I do. You have a lot of copies of your own book. (laughs) (laughs) It's the only one I need. (laughs) Um, you've written 25 books. Ah. Uh, 27 to be, to be exact. Some of them are very short though. It doesn't, I, I'm a cheater. Uh, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm an underachiever. <laughs> <laughs> but the difference between you and I is that everyone has been talking about your book and I kept hearing about this book and I said, okay, I need to talk to this guy. What is this book that everyone is, is keeps mentioning and saying it's so great. So, uh, so thank you for taking the time. But here's the thing. I, I want to know if, if you're like me. If one person says, oh, you got to read this, I'll think, oh, I should probably read that. And then maybe I'll check it out. Maybe I won't. Mm-hmm. If five people say, oh, you have to read this, I'll be like, okay, this is, I got to add that. To, I gotta, I'm definitely buying that book. Mm-hmm. If 20 people say you got to read this, then I'm immediately like, eh, it's probably overrated. It can't be that good. <laughs> yeah. So it's got to hit that sweet spot, right? Yeah. <laughs> You feel the same way about uh, the hype in the book business? <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's nice though for me because um, I've been writing for quite a while, and and this is this feels like my debut though because it's my first mm. proper book in America, so it's like being brand new again. So it's nice. Yeah, well, that's that's got to be the the goal, I guess. Ever since you know the, the Beatles is always is cracking the American market, right? Without a doubt. I mean, it's not just because it's such a big market, but because um, I set the books in America, it's um, yeah, it's kind of really special to me. So I was nervous in the run up to it. Actually, I don't tend to get nervous because normally it's just me talking about my book, and I know the book better than anyone else. So there's not, you know, it's not something to worry about so much. But um, it was you know, a whole new market and, and people, I worried that people might think that I shouldn't set books in America because I don't live there or haven't been there often. And, you know, you kind of, you feel a bit vulnerable. Uh, Yeah, I'm sure. Cause yeah, these, uh, that was my first thing is uh, this, this is not a very British book and you've set, uh, and even it's not just this one. I mean, you've set books in Alabama and then, and I, and I, listen, I live on the coast of California, so I would know if this is right or not. And I, I'll, I'll give you this one. Yeah, I think yeah. you got it right. I've got the Eric thumbs up. I'm going to put ask them to put that in the book in the next print run. <laughs> definitely, that's all I needed. The other thing about this book is it made me a, a little bit mad because mm-hmm. it, it came right on the heels of me being told by an agent that I was pitching that the book that I submitted to him was it, it was I was too mean to my main characters. It was, I was beating them up too much. They were going through too much. Oh my! No one wants to read about. And then I picked this up. It's getting all this praise, and you are so cruel to these characters. <laughs> you put them through so much. I really am, aren't I? I um I've had so many messages from people um 
some of them are angry, actually angry <laughs> about um about certain parts of the book, but um it didn't feel mean when I was writing it. It felt like I mean we all know that life isn't fair, you know, in general there's no kind of, there's probably no one in control, right? So <laughs> so it's just um a series of random acts and um some people come off worse in those acts and and that that's who I focused on in this story. But but we've got a police police chief in Walk that is is happy and good and for the most part fairly well rounded. I think he's the um yeah the bright to Duchess is dark, I guess. Well, and I think you you, you get to the important part, which is uh, even though they're going through these terrible things, we I I certainly I felt empathy for them. I mean, Duchess is someone that you can't help but root for, and and you you want her to get out of the situation you want her life to to take an upswing so she can get some of that lightness and that's really the key right when you're writing a character who's going through terrible things is there has to be a light at the end of the tunnel yeah there has to be and they're um i think it's crucial as well isn't it that um that readers care and can empathize you know they don't necessarily have to like the character you know and you don't have to like everything they do because um duchess is 13 and tends to make some pretty bad decisions in the book and they're hard to understand sometimes. And I've had readers messaging me saying that, you know, it's frustrating. Why can't she toe the line kind of? And um, But she's 13 and she's had no real childhood. Yeah, I'm pleased that you cared. It means I've done my job. Well, and I mean, come on, how many great decisions did you make when you were 13? Yeah, I, I can remember loads of them and none of them were good, actually. <laughs> there were some terrible ones. Well, and I've, I was doing a little bit of a background check on you and a little bit like some of these characters. I mean, you yourself seem to have kind of hit rock bottom a few times in your life. Yeah. You've, you've, you've had your struggles. I have. Yeah. Yeah. I was um, mugged when I was 19 and tried to fight the mugger off because I was feeling brave that day and he wasn't very big. And then he pulled out a kitchen knife and stabbed me in the side a few times. And after that, I had some PTSD. What I now know is PTSD because at the time I didn't realize what was happening to me. Yeah. And I didn't. I'm not, I'm terrible at asking for help. You know, I'd rather figure something out on my own or fail at it than, than let people know that I need them. And then writing this book kind of got me through it. You know, back when I was 19, I started writing the character of Duchess. Oh, wow without wanting to be a writer or without wanting to to write a book or tell a story. I just, it was a kind of therapy. It's interesting that you say you were reluctant to ask for help because from, from what I've gathered from some of the other stuff that I've read about, you also uh, are fairly untrained as a writer. You really kind of just jumped in and, and figured it out on the page. Was that a, a struggle or did, or did you like just sort of figuring it out on your own? I didn't set out to to write a book until I was nearly 30. And um, and I had lost a load of money in the city and, and been through another difficult time. And, um, and then I read a book called The Last Child by John Hart, which I loved, and read an interview with John where he talked about giving up a successful law career to become a writer. And, um, and I found it so inspiring that I quit my city job and um, kind of changed our, we were on a fairly comfortable path, my wife and I, you know, and the future was fairly certain and, and overnight everything changed. And so I felt the pressure with that first book. You know, sometimes with your debut, you get to, you know, you get some time, don't you? You're normally working another job or you, you don't kind of jump in at the deep end. And I did. And it's tough, isn't it? To write a book is tough. To find an agent is tough. To land a publishing deal is incredibly tough. Oh, the yeah. odds are massively stacked against you. And I didn't realise any of this. I just kind of blindly went into it thinking, 
I, I read a lot of books. I really want to tell a story. I can write a book. I think I found out fairly quickly that I couldn't. So. <laughs> I, I compare it like I, I'm a fairly untrained musician. Like, I, I, you know, I, I played in bands for years and stuff, but like I couldn't tell you I can't read music and that kind of thing. But I always yeah. am drawn to those kind of people who just figure it out because they want to do it. And I think it gives you know, musicians, a unique sound. I think the same is true for writers. I think, you know, not going through an MFA program probably gives you a unique voice. Mm, yeah, I think so. I am. Um, yeah. I warm to people like that. I am. Um, I just, we know what we like, don't we? I like to think I'm a, a good judge of what is good for me, for my level, for my standard of writing. You know, I know if I, if I've written something and I could improve on it, because, you know, sometimes when you're writing and you want to hit a word count and you're, you want to go and do something else and you kind of push out those words and yeah. you know deep down that you're going to have to come back and change them later. Right. And, um, and I spend half my life doing that, really. So, but, um, yeah, I don't th- and as well, I don't think anyone, hopefully no one will judge us as harshly as we judge ourselves. Oh, yeah, no, that's impossible. <laughs> yeah, same for me, yeah, it's the same. So I'll, I'll lie down at night, you know, awake and worry about a paragraph in the book. Um, to the point where I'll get up in the middle of the night and log on to my computer and fix it or change it enough so that I can get to sleep. And my wife thinks I'm completely insane. I just, I have such a, a respect for the people that go out and spend their hard-earned money on my book. And, and I feel like I owe it to them. And I owe it to my agent and I owe it to my publisher to, to deliver the absolute best that I can. Let's take a moment and, and give kudos to your wife, because if I proposed to my wife that I was going to quit my job to write full time, she would not stand for that for a second. <laughs> I know. And she was um, she was pregnant at the time. Oh, my and, God. Um, yeah. And um, she was a student. So she I was the only um, my job was the only source of income. So, and I came home. She didn't know that I'd ever written anything because I didn't tell her I'd kind of been doing this therapy writing. And so me coming home age 30, having been a stockbroker and saying, I'm going to write a book, you know, <laughs> quit my job. it was completely out the blue. You know, she was blindsided and she um, and we stayed. I remember that night clearly because we stayed up pretty much till sunrise trying to work out a plan. We had to sell our apartment and our car and, and everything checked. Wow. But on the flip side, I just, I really wanted to, to tell stories. I really wanted to give it a go, you know, a proper go. I wanted to, Yeah. I, it's not even that it made me happy. It's just, I felt like I really needed it. You know, I don't know where I would be without writing. I mean, do you think the reason that you began this writing journey is, is there not that there's enough trauma to sustain you through book after book yeah. after book and not that you would want yeah. that, but has the motivation changed at all now that you're uh, a few books in? Yeah, no, not at all. If anything, it's worse. <laughs> I don't know if worse <laughs> is the right, but the obsession is kind of worse. It's um, I've just come to the realization that it's something I need in my life, you know, to, to feel grounded and to be okay. But um, I would certainly carry on writing if no one were to ever read another word that I, I write and I guess you you must be fairly similar you know if you're on book number 28 now yeah yeah no I I I, I very much so I, I think it's the kind of thing that you, I think if you're not in a position where you're going to do it whether or not you're making any money at it or whether or not anybody's reading if you're not just going to do it anyway then you're probably doing it for the wrong reasons. Exactly. Yeah, it's certainly not a thing to go into for the money. Or for the, right. 
<laughs> if you do it because you love it, then there's no real downside. Other than the, the torture and the mental anguish we put ourselves I mean, through every day, seven days a week. <laughs> yeah, other than that. I mean, it's it's sit out here and talk to you or spend time with my kids. So it's a no-brainer. <laughs> it's, um, it's an easy one. But I don't know. I was worried that I wouldn't feel, because I'm so far away, I was worried I wouldn't feel connected to the book coming out in the US because I was supposed to be over there. Yeah. Um, for some of it and obviously plans had to change but doing things like this and getting to talk to to you and to other people and to readers and writers and it's been fine you know i felt i feel totally in it if that makes sense oh that's great yeah well listen i i, I want to thank you for for taking the time to join me today and and thanks for the book it was a book that i needed at the moment i i had set aside a few books right before this so this was a a, a good one that i was like oh yes this is these are my kind of people yeah. <laughs> the sad depressed yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, that's us eric isn't it that's me and you <laughs> but uh, if we've learned anything today I think you've shown that at 13, you make some terrible decisions, but also at 30, you can make some really rash, terrible decisions. <laughs> you can, yeah. So basically, you're never safe. <laughs> and also, folks, don't buy this book for Chris's sake. Buy this for his wife's sake. Yeah. She, I think she <laughs> made the bigger leap of faith here and the biggest risk. So That's a good, let's that's make this a bestseller for her. Yeah, yeah. she deserves it. <laughs> All right, well, it's time for a new segment here on Writer Types. She said, she said. So how this works is I gave the same book to two reviewers, and they are both here to tell us about it and what they thought. So first joining me is Lauren O'Brien. She is a prodigious reader, a good friend of mine. She's a reviewer with shelf awareness. And also with us is my sister Gretchen, who can also read. <laughs> I, I, I can read. I, I can verify that. Okay. You've been doing it for many, many years now. Yeah. You did get to the large print version though, right? <laughs> uh, so you guys both read Don't Turn Around by Jessica Berry. And this is a dark and dangerous road trip with characters Kate and Rebecca, two strangers who both have secrets and they somehow end up in a Jeep together, find themselves being hunted by a mysterious truck driver across the desolate flatlands of Texas. Do I have that right? Is that an accurate summation of what happened? That is yeah. correct. Although they do make okay. it into New Mexico. So Texas and New Mexico. Oh, well, I guess they didn't <laughs> want to give that away on the, uh, on the press materials. <laughs> Spoiler alert. They make it to New Mexico. Great. Well, now I don't even need to read the book, really. What else do you need to know? Uh, all right. Well, Jessica was a guest on the show uh, previously on Writer Types for uh, her novel Free Fall. It is a pen name for a literary author. So there's a little bit of mm. mystery there right off the mm. top. Uh, but let's jump right in. Lauren, uh, let's go to you first. What was your initial impression of Don't Turn Around by Jessica Berry? I loved it. I went in blind. I didn't really know much more than you just said. And I was a little, not hesitant, anything to do with the book, but I was coming off, you know, as we all were, a year of pandemic brain trying to read. Yes. Also years of reading really heavy nonfiction. So I was really in a place where I needed something that was entertaining, in my wheelhouse, well-written, good moving plot. And it, it hit all of those things. It was kind of just what the doctor ordered. I wanted to sit down and read it every day. Nice. Yeah. Gretchen, uh, uh, do you have a contrarian view or are you on the same page here? 
I'm on the same page. I really enjoyed it too. And same thing. I went in blind. I didn't even read the jacket cover. Lauren and I had been kind of texting a little bit back and forth, but yeah, part of it, you're, it's hard to talk about it too much without giving away any spoilers. Um, yeah. So it's really hard to say anything about the plot, but there was a lot of it where I'm like, okay, so you're trying to figure out like why they're on this road trip and where they're going. And, you know, you have all these theories running through your head and it was, you know, I don't know, maybe halfway through and it's like, oh, okay, that's a little bit different than what I was thinking <laughs> it was going to be. And it was, you know, the two of them in the car and, it, you know, had some flashbacks to previous months to kind of build up to how they ended up in the car together. And I thought what she did so, so well was really capture that just sense of dread. And you didn't, you know, it was kind of a little free floating because you didn't really know what it was that you were dreading. But I think especially as a woman, kind mm. of, you know, that same feeling of you're walking in a dark parking lot and, you know, you kind of hear something. So is somebody behind you and just there was that sense of dread through so much of it, which I thought she did a really great job with. Well, that's interesting because I mean, yeah, now I, I have not read this. So I'm looking to you guys to to recommend this or not. It sounds like something that I, I'm really going to like, but it is tricky because you, you when you find out just a little bit and sometimes a little bit of information can maybe be a detriment because when I hear like, oh, the whole book is just two people in a truck. Oh boy, I don't know if I want to, <laughs> you know, but that, that uh, didn't scare anybody off, right? No, no. And, and it's it's not just that. I'm kind of a sucker for multi-point of view, multi-timeline stories. And even if you're not, I think she does it so well. I, I was never confused about, you know, what period of time we were in, who was talking, all of that is really clear. And what I think she really did a great job at is what Gretchen was referring to was you go in and she throws you little bits of information that you as a reader take assumptions from or judgments from, and then she changes that as the book goes through. Your perceptions of all the characters and what's going on changes, which I think keeps mm-hmm. you on your toes and keeps any perceived boredom of two people in a car on a road trip way out of it. Now, is this uh, the kind of thing where you you were tricked by the author? Like, was was she playing games with you, or was she just uh, making those reveals and the revelations at just the right time to to sink the hooks in deeper? Because I my favorite thing in the world is if I get to a point and I, you know, hit a hit something that a writer does that I had no idea it was coming, and it like you say shifts the book into kind of a different light. If I can you know, miss the clues along the way. But then when you look back and you go, oh, it was there in front, right in front of my face the whole time. <laughs> Is it that kind of a reveal? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't feel like you were tricked. I think she was, you know, just dropping enough little things throughout that, again, like Lauren was saying, you, you keep thinking maybe it's this and then your perception changes because you get another piece of information dropped in. I did like the way she kind of doled things out. So it all made sense in the end. And you didn't feel like she kind of pulled the rug out from under you but everything kind of builds on top of each other. When you guys are reading, I mean, are you the kind of, uh, you know, mystery or, or thriller reader who likes to try to keep ahead of, of the author? Are you, are you constantly second guessing uh, things as you read uh, a book like this, Lauren? I do not. I, um, in, in my day job, I kind of 
did enough analysis and trying to think things through and figure things out as a reader, especially with this kind of book, I just want to be taken on the ride. I don't try and figure things out. I take things as they come. There was one point in this particular book where something happened and it was like in that movie where the person goes outside when there's a, a killer outside and you're like, uh-huh. oh, and, and it was something <laughs> so dumb. I was just really frustrated. And then she turned the tables on me. And I went, Oh, you're sneaky. And it turned into one of those turned into one of those genius little trick. It was something super minor. But it was there. And I thought, Oh, you got me with that one. So I love those kinds of things. So I don't really try and think too far ahead. And Gretchen, you you were recently on a road trip. Was this uh, did, did this sit in the back of your mind like, oh boy, oh oh no, now I'm on the open highway. Troubles are coming. Well, we were we were driving in broad daylight, so that definitely helped, you know, ratchet down the the, the fear factor there. Um, yeah, so no, I was I was fine on my road trip. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, all right, so uh, in a brief summary, I, I think it sounds like you guys both give this one a big thumbs up. I do. I really liked it. Yeah. And I actually went, I had just read her debut or the first one, maybe a month or so just to, cause I had been sitting on my pile for a while since my pile is outrageously, you know, awfully huge. Um, and I really liked that one too. So after reading that one, I was excited to dig into the new one. I had also heard really good things about the first one and I will go back and read it. And I just wanted to say two other things I thought she did super well This is a book that can be read just as a straight, great thriller mystery. But there are also a ton of social issues in here that are super Mm -hmm. on point as far as what a lot of us are going through today. And I thought she did a really good job. You didn't feel beaten over the head with it. You didn't feel like, oh gosh, she's preaching to me. It was Mm -hmm. so well woven into what was going on that you could think about those things at at just face value as part of the story, or you could do more thoughtful analysis of, gosh, what, you know, what do these things really mean in the grander scale? I thought she did that really well. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Uh, Well, Don't Turn Around by Jessica Berry gets the uh, writer types thumbs up. Uh, Well, thank you guys for, uh, for agreeing to, to read this book. And uh, there's another one on on its way to you guys right now. So I'll be interested to hear uh, what you think of that. Fantastic. This was fun. Yeah, this was a good one. I really liked it. All right. Well, I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah. Next time I'm uh, in Chicago, I will pull it off your giant pile, Gretchen. <laughs> All right, well, then I'll keep it on the pile. <laughs> I just I just hope I don't topple the tower over and crush one of the cats. Yeah. It's a game of Jenga that you don't want to give your life to. <laughs> My next guest is a debut author based in Australia. Amy Souter Clark is the author of Girl 11, a novel about a true crime podcast host a serial killer, and how they make life really very difficult for each other. The book is just out, and it's getting rave reviews, so it was a pleasure to brave calculating the time zones to talk with her. All the way from Australia, it's Amy Souter Clark, uh, and yet, Amy, I kind of feel like I'm being tricked because your accent is pure Minnesota. What's going on? (laughs) Yes, I was born and raised in Minnesota, brief interlude in North Dakota when I was a baby. But I live in Melbourne, Australia now. I've lived here since 2014 with my husband, who's Australian. And so I'm a dual citizen now, but have still maintained my 
very American accent. Well, I, there are a, a lot of fantastic Australian crime writers, and we've had a there few are. on the show. So uh, I, I'm, it's you're in a good spot to be able to ingratiate yourself into a, a, a different crime writing community, but one that's still tied into the larger crime writing community at large. It's not like you're missing out on that much uh, with your debut novel here. Yeah, I feel really lucky. There's a lot of really incredible Australian crime writers, both writing crime set in Australia and abroad. So I feel very fortunate to be among them. Well, that debut novel is called Girl 11, and it's hot off the presses here uh, by the time this episode airs anyway. Uh, but you you have to wait for it a little bit longer in Australia. Is that frustrating? <laughs> it's a little frustrating, but it's actually kind of nice because I, there's two weeks between when it comes out in the U.S. and when it comes out in Australia. So it gives me that little bit of breathing room and publicity. I'm writing articles and doing interviews for the states right now, whereas stuff that's due for Australia, I can kind of push back a little bit and say, I'm sorry, I have to wait until next week. Same with the UK. It comes out on, I think, 3rd of June in the UK. So I have that oh. little bit of extra time. Basically, a book coming out every month for the next three months. <laughs> <laughs> not a bad place to be. <laughs> it's not. It's very exciting. Well, this book is about a true crime podcaster who gets involved and tries to solve the case of a serial killer, and she gets drawn into this world uh, you know, maybe a little deeper than she expected, I guess. Yep. So I immediately handed this book over to my wife, who has grown obsessed with true crime podcasts during this quarantine. Are you a fan of these uh, true crime shows as well? I am. Yes. Lately, I've been listening to a lot more um, like journalistic type of podcasts, but I still I found podcasts through Serial like so many other people and then mm. immediately became obsessed with finding all of the other podcasts that were like serial. So I definitely have, I have a list of podcast recommendations in the book club kit for this book because I have a whole bunch that I love and that I think are really inspirational for this story. I've had a couple people reach out and say, do you like X podcast? Because it seems like you <laughs> listen to them based on the transcripts. And I say, yep, that was a big inspiration. <laughs> I share your wife's passion for true crime podcasts for sure. You structure this book in a very unique way with the transcripts of the podcast that you, that you sprinkle in along the way. I mean, I, I wonder as you were writing, was that the same almost as you know writing scenes of dialogue or was it a very different process as you were writing those chapters versus the straight narrative chapters it was a really different process and actually the straight narrative was written first and mm. i told the story kind of in in text interviews but this is my first podcast interview so that's exciting, cool, exciting. um <laughs> so girl 11 actually started out started out way way back as this kind of uh, Elle was part of this elite investigation unit after the police had been abolished in Minnesota. And that didn't work. Like it, it just, it was too much a side part of the story. And that's such an important story to tell that I just knew I wasn't doing it justice. And so right. then I kind of retreated from this really big idea to what if she was just a plain old detective, uh, which was too boring and also didn't work because so much of Elle's <laughs> character was about working against the police and going against what normal police investigation looks like. So yeah. when I handed the draft to my agent, that was the first big note that she had was like, this just isn't working with Elle being a detective. And she was absolutely right. And I just kind of hoped I could get away with it. 
but I'm, <laughs> as I'm sure you know, when you know that there's a problem that you hope you can get away with, that's the first problem that people identify. Yeah. Um, so I had had this idea along while I was writing What If She Was a True Crime podcast host because I was really into podcasts and I had just read Sadie by Courtney Summers, which I thought was an incredible book and really well done. So I had avoided doing it because I knew it would be a lot of work. But once I found out that the book wasn't working the way it was, it was kind of the motivation that I needed. So I rewrote the entire book in six weeks. And the majority of it was the podcast transcripts because, as I said, Elle was working so much by herself and not with her police department anyway that it actually worked to just completely remove her from needing to follow those structures and protocols well yeah it it works incredibly well it's very it's very effective uh, technique in there and it makes the book very unique thank you and and i you know count me very jealous because i'm i'm on an agent hunt now for a new agent i can't get anybody to bite at all and your your agent's sitting there saying this book totally doesn't work but i'm going to stick with you so Yes, I I owe Sharon a great deal of gratitude because she stuck with me through two books that didn't sell as well. And she's a fantastic agent and always gives me great feedback. All right. Well, your killer in this book, the countdown killer, has this very insidious pattern to to these murders. And I always wonder about this. When when somebody is writing a serial killer because you, you know you look at this character and you think oh that's that's so evil but then at some point you had to come up with that you had to think those evil thoughts <laughs> that, does that bother you or more to the point does it bother your husband <laughs> um that's a good question i don't think it bothers my husband too much um he's quite removed from the whole fiction world like he's very into fantasy so i think he probably reads a lot worse things in fantasy to be completely honest <laughs> But yeah, it was difficult for for many reasons to sit and think about, you know, the worst things that someone could do to another person. But I have chronic anxiety. I think a lot of people with anxiety are drawn to true crime because somehow reading or listening to the worst things happening to people kind of makes you feel like, well, I've read about this now, so it can't happen to me. Even though that's 100% not true, there's like a psychological <laughs> thing. I'm sure a lot of therapists have a field day with that. Well, and writers at some point, we are all kind of amateur psychologists yeah. in a way. And, and then you create a character like that or they, they run into your mind and you, they're, they're fascinating. You want to follow them where they go, right? You do. And I I kind of wanted to, with The Countdown Killer, not to give too much away about the book, but I kind of wanted to show like, we, we put a lot of focus on these types of people and what makes their brains work the way they work. And the reality yeah. is like 99 times out of 100, they're just assholes who wanted to hurt people. <laughs> like we all have wow. bad things that have happened to us in our childhoods and those things are inexcusable and we shouldn't have to go through them. But some people, a very small minority of people use those as an excuse to treat other people as terribly as they were treated. And that was one of the things I really wanted to explore with my book is two characters who had terrible things happen to them in their childhood and chose very different paths on how to respond to that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, because like you say, I mean, Elle has her own uh, history, but she is using it for good mm-hmm. to, to simplify it. I mean, yeah, she's and, and then, of course, using that as a motivation, I think, for her to try to stop the evil that she sees with, with this killer that, of course, 
only gets her into more trouble. <laughs> As it has to for a main character in a thriller. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so this book is uh, is set back in your native Minnesota, but as you said, you've been living abroad for, for quite a while. Do you think living abroad is going to start to creep into your fiction at all? I mean, it does creep in with word choice and things sometimes, which is really interesting, yeah. or just forgetting that things aren't a certain way in America or in Minnesota as they are here. So a great example of that that my agent pointed out in my manuscript was I said something about a character going to a mall and going to the butcher. And she was like, are there butchers and malls in Minnesota like that just seems like really unhygienic and <laughs> I was like I don't know if there are but there definitely are in like every mall in Australia like you have a you have groceries you have produce you have butcher deli all kind of in one spot like it's basically you go to the mall so you can go to shopping you know for clothes and shopping for food yeah so little things like that creep in where I just forget what life is like <laughs> America. <laughs> well, now you've also gone over to the dark side and started your own podcast, I have. Scared Litless. Uh, why would you go and ruin your life like that, Amy? <laughs> uh, what a great thing for a podcast host to say. Um, well, part of it was because obviously I have a podcast element in my book. So just candidly, yeah. like it was a little bit of a marketing and promotion thing. But I also felt like there was a little bit of a gap, like there wasn't anything out there specifically for crime and thriller writers about our genre that I knew of. There might be because there are millions of podcasts now, but I had never seen anything advertised about that. And I thought, you know, it's a very specific genre. There's with its own issues and idiosyncrasies. And I thought that there was something that I could bring to the table about that. And there's obviously such a big true crime obsession that I thought it would be great to have a podcast where we talk about true crime and the things we like about it. And and just a little bit of fun to play trivia games with my best friend and <laughs> try to make each other guess if trivia is about a different author or a killer. It's great times. <laughs> well, I, I hope you've realized uh, right away how much work it is. It is so <laughs> much work. Somebody understands my pain. I do. <laughs> Commiserations. <laughs> Well, it's time for a question. And today's question is this. What was the best Pulp Fiction crime magazine? And joining me to answer this are Jeff Vorzimer and Peter Infantino, editors of the Best of Manhunt two-volume set, as well as the Manhunt Companion. And gentlemen, I do believe we may have given away the answer right there. Did I spoil it? <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> no, no, actually, I don't think you did, because there are two answers. Oh, yeah. go for it, Jeff. You know, of course, Peter and I are going to say Manhunt, but uh, we really can't overlook Black Mask. Right. And the two magazines kind of dovetail perfectly within their history, because it was a mere 18 months after Black Mask ceased publication that Manhunt jumped in and to take up this void. Yeah, I mean, Black Mask is one that you, you generally associate more with maybe the 1930s, the 1940s, and then Manhunt shows up in 1953, published all the way to 1967. So, I mean, is that still considered the classic era of, uh, of Pulp Fiction, or is it, did, uh, did they come late to the party? I look at 20th century crime fiction as 
kind of two distinct eras. And I, I think we can actually even name those by the crime magazine that predominated in each. Yeah. Manhunt followed follow the same tradition of publishing, you know, about a half dozen stories, varying lengths, you know, some short to 2,000 words. And you had these sort of mini novellas, 15,000, 17,000. Uh, and Peter, you ha- took on the daunting task of actually reading every single story <laughs> published yeah. by Manhunt. And then in the Manhunt Companion that you guys have, you give ratings and summaries to each one. I mean, was this, how long did this take you? That's a really good question. And that, like Jeff, that's a two-part answer. Uh-huh. <laughs> I've been writing about Manhunt since 1994. In fact, I just, I bought a, uh, a big batch of old paperback fanzines over the weekend and was looking through them and found one of my articles on Manhunt uh, <laughs> from 1994. I was influenced by Ed Gorman. I don't know if you're familiar with Ed Gorman. Yeah, yeah. Ed Gorman and I used to talk quite a bit on the phone. And whenever we talked, Ed would always bring up Manhunt. I finally thought, well, I've got to check this out. Well, I was at a a paperback show in LA and met up with Bill Pronzini. And Bill Pronzini says, you've got to meet this guy. It was was kind of like one of those drug deals. You've got to meet this guy (laughs) in the parking lot. He's going to open his trunk and you're just going to go, oh my God. We opened his trunk and it was a trunk full of Mike Shane's and Manhunt's. And he wanted like a buck a piece for me. Wow. So I bought everything because I didn't have any of that. I was like four or 500 of them. Wow. And I got through about the first 22 or 23 issues and I burned out. I got burned out and somebody made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And I sold, I had the whole set. I sold them all and immediately had seller's remorse. Ah. (laughs) Long story short, I bought another set. I didn't really know what to do with them until uh, Jeff contacted me. And Jeff contacted me and said, you want to do this thing? I said, yeah, that's, that's great. Can I have a couple years to finish them? No, no, it's got to be done pretty quick. So I basically read almost 90 issues in six months. Oh, wow. It was about a thousand stories, I think it was, over a six-month period. Oof. Um, it's not the ideal situation, believe me. You want to no. you want to savor those stories, a lot of them. Uh, but And then, Jeff, you, uh, how do you go about selecting the stories to compile into these two best-of collections with that many stories to, to choose from? What elevated some above the others? <laughs> well, I enlisted the help of Bill Pronzini, uh-huh. uh, whom Peter just mentioned. Like Peter, he's the only other person I know that's read every issue. So I said, Bill, could uh, could you put together a list, you know, the best stories from Manhunt? And he gave me a lot of advice on procuring the rights to these stories and, uh, you know, what I should offer for them and that kind of thing. And he was yeah. very, very helpful. And we ended up using probably all of his choices, except for two stories that we could not where the the agent refused to give us the rights for whatever reason, but we used everything else. The la, the second anthology I relied on Peter because I didn't have quite enough to fill up. I said, you know, what, what should I what should I use? You know, what stories yeah. are your favorites? Well, that's I mean, thank you, uh, Peter, for doing the work for us, so we don't have to hole up in a cabin in the woods and read this. We, we can get just the cream of the crop. <laughs> a lot of people really rip on those last few years of Manhunt. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to touch them. Nobody wants anything to do with it. You're not going to see very many of those stories anthologized. But there's some really good stuff in there by people you've never heard of before. I was uh. I was just floored. I was surprised. There's some really, really good stuff in there. 
Well, one of the things I like about the Manhunt Companion that you, you guys have compiled is that you you know you give little capsule reviews of every story and ratings, but you're not fawning over everything. And there's a fair amount of one star stories in there, and some stuff where it's like, yeah, this is just formulaic. I, I appreciated the the honesty in that. <laughs> one of the reviewers called me idiosyncratic, um, <laughs> and, and he, to be fair, he is on the money. Well, and Jeff, in, in your introduction, you even mentioned that uh, you guys didn't always agree on everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. If there was any friction at all, it was, uh, you know, my disagreeing with uh, Peter on some of his assessments of the stories. But, you know, I, I signed on Peter to do his thing. And I wanted to give Peter credit for for the reviews, the work that I did on it besides all the cover scans was that index creating a database. And I mm. had that database and the idea sort of grew out of that. Just being humble because the, he really kind of egged me on to, to make my stuff better because, you know, towards the end there, you can see me getting grumpy in a few spots where I, <laughs> I, I just don't want to do this anymore, but I got to, I got to do it. I mean, what do you guys, is there any one element that made Manhunt stand out? Is it is it the editing? Is it just the era of the, the writers that, that they happen to have luckily fallen into? Is there a thing that elevates Manhunt above some of the other stuff that was out there at the time? Because there was a lot of, you know, true detective, dime detective, thrilling detective, a lot of stuff going on kind of at the same time. But Manhunt does have a slightly different vibe to it. Yeah, I think there's uh, fewer of the detective stories um, that, than, that ran in Black Mask. The stuff that ran in Manhunt was, was different and a little less hard-boiled and more what I would call noir. Yeah, well, psychological. And, and I think they announced it maybe kicking off that first episode with Mickey Spillane splashed right on the cover. That, that's a, yeah. You're saying something about your editorial style by that, right? <laughs> right, right. Well, it's uh, it's an impressive uh, collection and, and, and an impressive amount of work that uh, that both you guys have put into this. And uh, I've, I I want to say thanks for putting the spotlight to back on this magazine. I mean, I'm, I've never I collect a ton of old paperbacks. I've never really gotten into the you know the pulp magazines. Uh, partly because I've been priced out, and partly because it's just so daunting. There's so many of them if you really go all the way back to the 30s. But I will say on my shelf, the only ones that I have copies of are a couple copies of Manhunt that I happened to track down at one, one point. So it's it's been on my radar for a while. And I'm, uh, I, I thank you for spotlighting them again and uh, the folks at Starkhouse for, for putting these volumes out. So uh, thanks, guys, for helping me answer this question uh, that we're going to vote at least for the, uh, the second half, the 50s and the 60s. We're going to say Manhunt uh, takes the top spot. If you want to go 30s, yeah, maybe you go to your black masks if you got the cash to dole out for those. Yeah, I want to just add a thank you to my publisher, Greg Shepard, who yeah, yeah, you know, shared our vision for this. Yes, absolutely, Starkhouse, doing good work. My final guests are returning to Writer Types once again. It is the team of Nikki French, who I always love talking with. They have a new novel out, The Other Side of the Door, and like all their books, it is a tense and twisty thriller. We talked from their home in England all about writing in the time of lockdowns. Hi, okay, hello. Hi, how are you doing? 
Good. How are you guys? Yeah, we're okay. We are fine. <laughs> you know, as good as anyone is at the moment. What does fine mean nowadays? <laughs> during this last year. Uh, exactly. Well, you know, you seem to be making the most of this time. You know, we'll jump right in here because your your new book, The Other Side of the Door. I mean, this follows closely on the heels of House of Corrections, which was mm-hmm. feels like it was just out. And then I was looking, and you've already got another book slated for October, at least in the States, The Unheard. Quarantine has been very productive. Nah, no, no, that you, you've been misled. Ah. This book, we actually wrote it in 2009, and ah. it, it came out in the UK and everywhere else, um, but not in the States. So they've, they've, this is 11 years, no, 12 years later. Oh, wow. We seem productive, but we're not productive. <laughs> Has it been? I mean, I know for a lot of people, it has been a hard time to be creative. Has has it uh, impacted your your process at all? I mean, I, you know, and I think for people who aren't in the creative pursuit, they see, well, you have all the time in the world. You must be yeah. just pages and pages every day. But it's not really the case, is it? I think it hasn't on in a in a kind of daily way. It hasn't impacted that much. So you know, we write from home. We've we're just living there together. So as you say, we have the time and we have the same routine and we just finished a book and we're starting, we're kind of halfway through the next book. So in that sense, it hasn't, but it has in the sense of not being able to be out there in the world, kind of experiencing things and taking things in. And we, like every writer, you can't just sit in your, your, your kind of little writing room and have ideas in the kind of, sealed off brain the the temptation is is to think that with free time comes inspiration but i I think you're absolutely right because inspiration comes from interaction it comes from picking up those little pieces of stories that we find from uh, you know an overheard bit of conversation or even just seeing someone walking down the street and they go there they look unique i wonder what their story is and that's how the the writer brain kicks in and if all you're doing is staring at the same person that you've been looking at for 20 years i mean so much of the way nikki and i think is by walking and walking through different areas and and also it's when you're not looking you know you can't you can't sitting in a room thinking you can only get you're sort of living off your seed corn a bit you know and i think actually you you really learn it is just the, the random things you could go when you go to some bit of london you've never been before and you think this now this is interesting mm. you know? i mean i think that's the problem i think there's going to be a, a problem in the next few years i think there's lots and lots of writers been sitting in a room thinking well i'm going to write a, book, a thriller about people trapped in a house with a small few people <laughs> right. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of uh, stories about spouses murdering each other. (laughs) Well, okay, so to the new one, the other side of the door, I mean, this uses a very unique structure with these parallel timelines, the before and the after. And it's got to be tempting to think that with two writers, it was easy to just hand off and say, oh, you do the before and I'll do the after. But it, it couldn't have possibly been that simple, could it? No, it couldn't be. Um, <laughs> Nikki, we, never, we can always rely, and we never do the, the simple, logical, labor-saving version. Yeah, because always, we, 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 it's one of our big rules is that we've never say in advance, oh, this would be better if you wrote that. So, and also because it really the two, we like to set ourselves sometimes certain technical challenges, you know, of different kinds in different books. And in this one, we, we were really intrigued by the idea of you take this moment of finding a body. And then there's two kinds of suspense, which is the suspense of, 
how did this woman Bonnie? How did she get here? How did this happen? How did her life fall apart to the extent where she's? It doesn't seem even that surprised, and she's having to deal with this. And secondly, the other kind of suspense is this woman in the middle of London. How do you get rid of a body? Right. For those of, of, of those listeners who've never actually had to dispose of a body, it's harder than you'd expect. <laughs> Without being caught. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I guess that's the trick to it. <laughs> hiding a body itself might be easy, but hiding it so nobody finds it, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. An, that's another level. <laughs> now, I, I, I have to mention, you know, for people who, who can't see you, this is now the second interview in a row I've done with someone in, in England, and apparently I keep catching everybody at tea time, or is it just that you are so British, everybody's constantly drinking tea? <laughs> we, Nick, Nikki and I, we just we we mainline coffee and tea starting at 7 30 in the morning and ending just before we go to bed it is just it's, it's always tea time in our house <laughs> just to go back to what sean was saying about the other sides of the door we wanted to have a story of kind of just strange dread so it's how did this happen and what's going to happen next and those two things running parallel together and there are times when the reader is way ahead of bonnie because they've seen into her previous into her future life which she hasn't yet yeah well it, it i think in a story like this where it is so crucial to sort of dole out the revelations at the right point when you know, enough in one timeline so that it becomes meaningful in the other. I mean, it had to have been a logistical nightmare. Did, did Was it apparent as you were going through or did some of that have to come, you know, reworking the timeline and rewrites and all that? No, well, you know, some, it's interesting. We have different, it's, it's for us, with different kinds of ideas. Some are just very simple. And you, you know, certain, some stories are very a kind of linear sort of tension. You can just allow yourself a kind of freedom at certain points to see how it will develop. But other ones need to be like constructing a clock where everything needs to fit together for the clock to work. Yeah. I mean, in order to make it easy for the reader to read, we it was very hard to write and construct. Well, and it, it, when you get done with a project like this, is the temptation then to, to look at each other and go, okay, the next one needs to be simple. <laughs> we, always, we always say that. So we always with each say book, it. we say that. But actually... <laughs> Not really. I I think it's more the opposite. We really like setting ourselves different kinds of challenges in the books that we write and kind of and have different approaches. So all the way through kind of Nikki French's writing career, if you like, and we like that, and it keeps us on our toes. We you know so and actually even if we think something's going to be simple, it never turns out to be simple, right? I mean, writing a book's never simple in the end, is it? No, no, definitely not. I, you know, I recently picked up a, a copy of one of your early books, Land of the Living, and, and it struck me as going through that, that a lot of your stories deal with piecing together pieces of the past. And, I, you know, I don't know if I was, am I reading too much into that? Do you, ha do you find after so many books that you have recurring themes and things that just sort of naturally spark your interest that end up becoming plot points? That's so interesting because, of course, actually piecing together pieces of the past, in a way, that's what we're all doing all the time, isn't it? We're kind of making sense of our life. And there's a way in which I think that a lot of thrillers and the kind of thriller that we write together, it's about trying to kind of give a shape to a mess, you know, in, but in this case, a mess of a crime. So in, I guess the other thing I'd say is that what we return to over and over again is, is the precariousness of kind of 
happiness or control or order in a life that most mm. people think that they're in control and they think they deserve the, the, the luck that they've got they somehow earned it and actually life is extremely fragile like that and then one minute through inattention through a wrong step through a piece of sheer bad luck it can fall apart and you find yourself in a whole different world but also i just add that i think i think it's true I mean, nikki and i spend a lot of time talking about our lives and our past lives and, and the different meanings of them. And, and, and so often you'll, you'll, you look back and you realise it it, things were different from the way you saw them at the time. And so anyway, the, so you mentioned Land of the Living, this, the main character, Abby, in that she has to, we were really intrigued by the idea of someone being a detective in her own life. And in a way, I, f I feel we're all the detectives in our own lives all the time because we're trying to work out, you know, we're surrounded, you know, even the people who are closest to us, are very are mysterious and often they can be not telling us the truth. You know, I mean, I think I think one of things that we do share, Nikki and I, is the feeling that the gap between a normal life and a normal family life and a psycholo psychological thriller is very close. All right, so I've, I have a, an awful question for you, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Oh, it's, our, our, <laughs> it's our third time talking. I, I feel like I know you well enough. <laughs> what would be worse for you? To hear from your partner, I I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce, or I'm tired of writing with you. I'm going to go write with somebody else. They might be the same thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. I I mean, what I would definitely say is, ah, uh, because we've we've often said, oh, we'll just you know, if once we stop enjoying it, we'll just we'll stop writing the books. If we feel if we ever felt it was a routine. But it's so interwoven into into our relationship now. I have to say, if if if, if Nikki suddenly said, "Do you know? I've just I've got this friend of mine, and we've got this great idea for a thriller. So you know, just I'll see you in a couple of years." It would be devastating. It would, so yeah. you prefer me to say I don't love you anymore? Yeah, go to that'd be fine. You know, <laughs> I know that would, that would be bad. That would be bad. But, uh, but it would be see, surprisingly painful. It would you know, be the very idea painful. that we could just. Oh, fine. Because you know, it's, it's not a job. It's, business, it's, it's not a it's job. Business, it's not business. It's, not it's, it's, it's not a job. It's like a kind of life that we're leading together through writing. So it would be. So I guess it would be, Sean would say to me, I'm going to write with someone else. And then I'd say, well, I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce. That's what? so the two would go together. Actually, I can't recall the third <laughs> worst version of this. If I suddenly discovered secret that Nikki had secretly been writing a book with someone else for several years. <laughs> So would that be worse than me secretly having an affair? You can see, I think this is the next the book, the book, this is our book after question. next is going to come out. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, then uh, I've, that cancels my next question, which is uh, which one of you wants to write a book with me? So we'll skip that one. And I'll just say <laughs> thank you again for uh, for joining me. Absolute Well, that's it. We made it. I survived dealing with all of those uh, time zone differences. And trust me, it was not easy. I did not plan to talk to everyone in different countries, but that's just how it worked out. So I know it was a lot, but there's still more to come in the next episode. My inbox is overflowing with requests and there are so many great authors I want to talk to. So until then, happy reading and thanks for listening.